views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord... Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Yohanan Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is July 20th, 2016. We'll go through this week's collection of stories, articles, and events with an abolitionist perspective. If you'd like to share a comment or question, call in and join us at 641-715-3660. The access code is 549-032-POUND. A writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is James Bo Cochran, who died on July 12th at age 73, nearly two decades after he was exonerated and released from Alabama's death row. Our abolitionist in profile is John Greenleaf Whittier, abolitionist, journalist, poet, and activist, 1807 to 1892. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. Peace, Brother Scotty. What's up, man? Hey, how you doing, uh, Max? Uh, how is the family doing? You know, I don't want to put your personal business out there, but you had mentioned on Facebook your family was facing another health, um, you know, uh, issue. Dude, I, I, I really don't even know how to put it into words. I can't imagine the things that we're going through is sequentially now, you know, month after month, one thing after the other. It's just it's beyond understanding. I'm trying to let go and let God... My daughter was diagnosed with bone cancer, and that's been a whirlwind from just a lump on her shoulder to surgery to you got cancer to you need to be in the hospital under this regimen for nine months to you need to go to Philadelphia so they can try to save you. It's, it, it's been a whirlwind. And then the week before that, my mother was diagnosed with cancer, given five years to live, or my great aunt, the one who I've mentioned that was raised by former slaves. And, uh, and today, my oldest daughter is giving birth. So it's just like a, it's a whirlwind right here, Max Man. Man, I, I don't even know what to do. And as you know, we just lost our house, our home, and everything in a flood. So it's been a hell of a transition. My wife just had a you know uh, situation where we almost lost her just a few months ago. It's crazy, dude. I, I don't need. I, I'm just holding on. That's all I can do. What else can I do? <laughs> well, with all that you just named, just really puts in perspective when we think we got problems. Cause you know I'm battling you know issues with technical issues with our server but that don't even compare to what you're going through um 
Um, so yeah, man, I'm just going to keep your family uh, in our prayers, and it just shows your commitment um, when you join us here. You know, to um, um, despite all of that, you continue your abolitionist work. Yes, brother, I need uh, to have that at this point in my life in order to give me some focus and to be able to look at things object uh, subjectively and objectively. You know, uh, so mm-hmm. I, I got to keep fighting. Got to keep fighting so we can manage everything else around us. There is so much more out there happening worse than to what we're dealing with. Uh, and I'm aware of that people are losing their lives on every side of the aisle right now. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I consider myself a witness. That's my main goal. I want to witness this and I want to report it and I want to tell people what's going on and at the same time offer solutions that could solve these problems and wake up uh, people to realities that we faced it where we have literally been fooled into believing something that's simply not true. And uh, that gives me sense of purpose. I'm very happy that recently uh, a new uh, documentary is coming out, which will be the first documentary ever, uh, which is a nonfiction to be, to open for the New York uh, film festival coming October 7th. And it's called the 13th and it's based on the information we've been putting out for years, Scotty, the 13th amendment, it's direct connection to slavery prior to the emancipation and afterwards and how it's morphed over the years through all the different scenarios. So they've made a nonfiction documentary that is now going to open the New York Film Festival on October 7th. That is awesome. I mean, yeah, it is awesome, man. And again, there's not a whole lot out there uh, in terms of popular media or what have you, so it makes you wonder where did, where, where did she get her inspiration from this film? You know, did she, did she see the other documentary about, uh, what was the documentary called? Slavery, um, what was it called? Um, man, Slavery by another name. Slavery by another name. Thank you, man. Because I got so much going on right now, man. So I'm trying to multitask because, you know, uh, the server being down affects more than just this station. It affects all the other stations. So I'm, excuse me if I seem kind of scatterbrained. But, yeah, it makes you wonder, you know, uh, I would love to hear, to interview her matter of fact and we can ask her those questions so isn't this the same um a uh, filmmaker who made the movie selma it is ava duvernay and uh the uh i'll read a little bit about it it says this film society of lincoln center announced this morning that ava duvernay's documentary the 13th will be opening night selection of the 54th New York Film Festival, September 30th, October 16th, making its world premiere at Alice Tully Hall. The 13th of the first ever nonfiction work to open the festival and would debut also on Netflix and open in a limited theatrical run on October 7th. Per the FSLC press release, the film chronicles the history of racial inequality in the United States, examining how the country has produced the highest rate of incarceration in the world, with the majority of those in prison being African American. The title of the film refers to the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, where the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. The progression from that second qualifying clause to the horrors of mass incarceration and the prison industry in the U.S. is laid out by DuVernay with bracing lucidity. Um, I I believe it also includes in here um, Michelle Alexander 
and Angela Davis, as well as a number of other speakers. Uh, I suspect that in combination with Birth of a Nation, that these two films are really going to wake quite a people, few people up to what we've been trying to impress on them now for uh, a very long time. Yeah, um, so I'm I'm happy, man. I hope it gets picked up, but in many theaters. But you know, don't many people. Again, I'm not complaining. I'm just acknowledging the fact that don't many people really watch documentaries. So let's hope that it will. You know, I hope it does well. Uh, maybe it will exceed expectations for documentaries, and it gets widescreen play throughout the United States and you know um, they can put it on PBS like they normally do and uh, maybe she sell the DVD or, or, or what have you we can you know support it that way but I'm very much you know just reading the synopsis it looks like you know that, that they believe just like we believe that what we're looking at is a modern day uh, transformation of slavery from plantation to prison and then just specifically mentioning the 13th Amendment and examining it, anybody should, with a 12th grade education or comprehension skill, be able to deduce from reading that slavery was never abolished. Still, people still don't get it, though, man. They still don't get it. It's, it's like this person who commented it on the article um, um, that I shared on, on Facebook. They are talking about, you know, uh, they're still using language as if it's past tense, saying, you know, first we went to enslavement, now they're renting our bodies or something like, you know, maybe they're hinting at wage slavery or something like this. But no, you never went from enslavement. And then I also, you know, this is just a stickler with me, I guess, knowing who I am and doing, you know, historical research and what have you. So I also always you know it's just a sticking point with me who is we we all weren't slaves see when you think that that everybody black on this continent or melanated or whatever was a slave that tells me you done no reading you done no reading you don't know history and you don't know of the 500,000 free black people who weren't slaves you know, you, you just don't know. And see, then when we look today, you know, everybody thinks slavery's over. No, no, it's not. Don't you see them concrete plantations in your county, in your town, in your city, wherever they are? You know, so, so man, we have an uphill battle. I'm not, I, I know I'm sounding like I might be angry. I'm not angry at that person. I'm just angry at the system for, for indoctrinating so many people with, with such a great lie, man. So, you know, it, it's just a battle. Every little bit helps. So let's hope that this film ends up waking some other people up to the fact that, you know, slavery was never abolished because, see, if you don't know what you're really dealing with, then how can you solve the problem? You know, you think it's something, you think it's a, it's like if I'm working on a car, you know, and I think that it might be the brakes, I might, you know, something wrong with the brakes, I'm hearing this weird sound or something like that, and so then I go to the store without doing any investigation, and I buy some brake pads, and I think that's going to fix it, and then when I take the, the uh, wheel off, and I'm looking at the rotor, and the rotor is so thin, it's like almost like a razor blade, see, it wasn't the brakes, it was the rotors. You see what I'm saying? And so if you don't if, if you don't do a proper diagnosis, if you don't go under the hood, so to speak, 
you know, then you're thinking that it's one problem and you're going to apply solutions to that problem, and that's not the problem. Slavery is the problem. That's a problem that's fixable. That's a problem that we should all be able to agree or, or a critical man should be able to agree is wrong. Okay? And so then once we accepted this slavery, then, you know, maybe it becomes a moral question. You know what I'm saying? Maybe, you know, people get inspired and become John Browns or become Frederick Douglasses or or any, uh, you know, and they really start looking at it from the abolitionist perspective and stop talking this reformed slavery. Join the slave masters on the inside and change it from there. No, no, no. We want to we want to end slavery, not join it. There are uh, certain correlations that I've seen in the fight for the end of slavery in the 1800s, as well as the civil rights fights and every fight that we've had every 50 years that we wake up and go through these issues. And um, it always turns out very badly, but I don't think we're repeating the civil rights era types of horrors and sufferings. I think it goes back to the 1800s, because at that time they knew what they were dealing with and it was slavery and people were willing to live or die to fight either for freedom or to keep slavery. It had divided the country and the world, really, uh, right down the middle. And their critical mass was just a little more than half of the population, which meant that the other half knew exactly what they were doing, and they wanted it to continue, and they would fight and die to keep it going. And we see that now uh, with people like uh, Sheriff David Clark uh, and a lot of the police officers and uh public workers that we've been seeing come out with these rants about wanting to start a war or have declared war on Black Lives Matter and by default on black people in general. So uh, it's not like, you know, we're calling for anything to blow up. As a witness, I'm telling you, I've seen this before and it's going to happen again and it's happening right now. And I think you should see it too. It's only going to end in, in bloodshed. It's bad. We need to break the chains now while we still can before you start seeing people out on the streets with machine guns rolling down to shooting anybody indiscriminately. We don't want to see that. I think we could solve this problem, and it would be the time now to break the chain of the violence every 50 years and finally us being beaten back into submission. And that would be to recognize the issue, take the exception clause out of the 13th Amendment so slavery is no longer legal, pass legislation like the Justice is Not for Sale Act that bans private prisons, and then really examine what we've been doing to our own citizens and consider, really consider holding people responsible for their actions regardless of what position they may hold. We have a fire chief here in South Carolina uh, recently that was talking about running protesters over if they were uh, there yeah, when he I was saw getting that. off work. You know, this is the environment we're living in. We can't live in this environment. And he was fired, too. Hey. People are supposed to protect us are talking about killing us. And he was correctly relieved of his duties. Yes. So yes. That, that's he, all people. That long before he said it. See, that's all the people out in the streets is really asking for is that killers be held accountable. That's all they're asking for. Nothing more, nothing less. Just killers be held accountable. You know, it's hard to watch video 
and and then you've been lied to by the police spokesman and by lied to by the news media and then you see the video and you saw the video and you know you know this this was just not justifiable you know but then when the prosecutor refused to prosecute or the prosecutor prosecutes and the jury can refuses to convict then you're just telling people that their life don't matter that is really why they call it black lives matter even though I do agree that, well, it's not a matter of agreement, but there are more victims of this system than just black people. We're just targeting it the most. But they don't want to hear, you know, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear accountability. They just want to hear, you know, just let us keep doing like we've been doing for centuries. You know, we're putting our lives on the line. We have to deal with the violent criminals. So, you know, we got to be able to have our fun, too. Man, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of all talked out, you know, right now. I'm just kind of really angry and frustrated, and, um, you know, I'm under attack right now. So, man. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, I understand, brother. I understand. I understand. I I need the witnesses. I'm here to see it. I want to see it happen, come to fruition, and I hope to God that somehow we can find a way to solve this without people dying. It's just too many deaths already. It's almost 700 people have been killed by police in the United States in 2016 already. And guess what? Now, guess what? Last year. Guess what, though, man? As a vet, I want to bring this up because don't nobody care about vets. You know what I'm saying? Really, they don't. But we heard Montel Williams go off on uh, some CNN anchor asking them something about some stupid Donald Trump or some stupid Hillary Clinton. And he like, look, 22 million vets a day are dying. And some money got stolen somewhere or it was misappropriated or something. Why are we not talking about real issues? Why are we talking about Melina Trump stealing a doggone speech or plagiarism? Why are we not talking about real issues? 22 vets a day. So I did the math, man, that 365 days out of a year, that's over 8,000 casualties, man. That's 8,000. 8,000 a day, I mean a year that's dying from violence, from government policies. And I also am am the only one that I have seen that have really pointed to the drug war putting uh, at least 700,000 vets in prison. So you want to know why some of these vets is snapping? Well, they can speak for themselves. They left their messages or whatnot. But I tell you, it's awful frustrating to anybody who put their life on the line, you know, uh, suffer for or on behalf of this country. or, or And then they come back and they just see that this is a lawless land. It is corrupt. There's criminals running the government. And, and you know, some of them snap, man. That's why I call them Rambro, man, Rambro. You know, Bram, Rambo was upset with the crooked sheriff. Look at that crook we got up there in Wisconsin. You know what I'm saying? So let, let, let me shut up, man. I'm kind of upset. It's not good to talk. It's difficult. Scotty. Let me be I quiet. Understand. 117 different nations have denounced what we're doing. Uh, at least Venezuela was very specific about the 13th Amendment and slavery. China has told us we got no business telling them about human rights violations considering what we're doing here to African Americans. Um, the world is seeing what's going on. Uh, recently, you just had a, a couple of other nations that have denounced what we are doing here. Uh, I know Canada warned its citizens to be wary of our police who were using search 
and seizure laws to just rob people. And I think there was another country that just did the same thing recently. Was it Brazil or something like that? Uh, Bahamas? Uh, Travel says it might have been the Bahamas. So, you know, the world sees what we're doing. We don't see it is the problem. We think this is all. Who, who don't see it? See, and I had to disagree with you there. I had to disagree yeah. with you there. It's just like I hear people, and they are correct to say in counter-racist circle, that white that uh, races are not ignorant about racism. White people aren't ignorant about racism. You know, the system isn't ignorant about any aspect of what no, it's no, doing. And most of the people... Yeah, most of the victims are. They are. Yes. You you are correct. But all these legends, you know Barack Obama know slavery was never abolished. You know he know that. You know, you know, a lot of these people, man, you know, they trying to play ignorant and stupid, but they ain't ignorant and stupid about what's going on. They just simply don't care. Or they're making money from the problem. So why you want to solve something that's going to, you know, that's why we have lobbyists like Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, trying to kill the Justice is Not For Sale Act that will ban private prisons. These people ain't ignorant. They know what's going well, exactly what they're doing. But like you said, you know, most of the masses, most of the masses with the Black Talk Radio and, and other progressive networks excluded. But the masses, man, they don't know. They don't know. They think they think slavery was, you know, ended way back when, you know, because when roots went off, you know, and and it's just sad, man. The system is not going to educate them to the truth. Why would it do so, man? And I've heard uh, like Sheriff David Clark recently was on national television. Of course, he spoke at the RNC, and where they cheered that no one was uh, convicted or charged the de- death of Freddie Gray, but. I heard him say to John in an argument that no, there is no proof of systemic racism amongst the police department. And, you know, we've done the research ourselves to find out in the Ferguson is America report. And it's, it's really bad where he's at in particular in Milwaukee, where more than one out of two African-American men will go to prison before they're 30 years old in Milwaukee and Wisconsin arrests African-Americans at, I think it's 12 or 13 to one. But there's a story about this place in uh, Louisiana called Gretna that has recently come out, thanks to uh, Fusion, where they have documented how eight out of nine young African-American men are going to jails. Eight out of nine. And how the majority of their offenses are poverty offenses and violations where they're paying these tickets, as you know, the Justice uh, Department of Justice report indicated with Ferguson, also in Gretna, but on a far larger scale. Um, and, you know, they have a small black population, but they are overwhelmingly represented within their jails and their uh, systems, their justice systems. So this is a huge expose that's came out, and it's an example of what we're dealing with. These numbers exist. If you don't want to recognize them or even accept the validity of them, how can we even reason with you? We can't even talk. That's what I'm saying, man. I don't, I'm not trying to sit down nowhere with a liar. What y'all want to sit down with a liar for? For what? So they can make your blood pressure go up? Because that's what happens to me when I get into conversations with people who I know are liars. Now, anybody, I mean, even white supremacists don't deny that racism exists. Do they? Now, I mean, the most powerful racist white supremacists on the planet, like Hillary Clinton, even Donald Trump don't say racism don't exist. You know what I'm saying? This man is going an extra mile. Don't get me started because, see, I don't want to give him my energy. 
I said what I had to say. I hope he heard what I had to say. I hope other like-minded people uh, heard what I had to say. But we're not going to tolerate somebody, uh, uh, whether they got a badge or not, talking about uh, uh, killing our kids. When you say that there's a civil war, that this e- these aren't terrorist acts and, um, and or, you know, this has nothing to do with terrorism. This is war. Black Lives Matter is the enemy. When you tell, say, word things like, and I am not exaggerating. Um, we might have mentioned it on this program. But Max, do you remember he said Black Lives Matter need to be exterminated? Yes, he said that the Black Lives Matter were slime who need to be exterminated. So y'all want to play games with people like that? I'm not playing. That's how Hitler started. How do you think? How do you think the Holocaust started in Germany? Not that we got a point at Germany, but this is the same kind of talk. I'm sure old Ben Tillman, a former, uh, I think he was a senator or governor of South Carolina, who was also a terrorist. I'm sure this is how he was talking to his constituents and, and whatnot. Them niggers ain't nothing, and we need to kill them and all this and that. You know what I'm saying? So so this is where people get confused, though. It's because he's got melanin. No, you know what? That don't matter. He 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 has has decidedly made it abundantly clear whose side he is on when it comes to justice versus non-justice. And nobody gets to threaten my children. Y'all can take like like you know I don't agree with everything that Mr. Cam, uh, Professor Cambon, uh, he's from here in North Carolina, said. You know some of the things that he have said, but one thing I do agree with him. He said our people are very serious about not being very serious, and if y'all think that we can ignore people like this in our community or anyone who would take to the public airwaves. To talk to millions of people and say that black kids need to be exterminated and and lie on them and say they are they are fighting in a civil war and they're behind these attacks on cops. He trying to get people to act. How do you know people haven't already acted on his words? This is serious. People, y'all need to start taking it serious. Okay. Yes, sir. When you when you turn human beings into commodities of flesh that you can own and rent and sell and buy and trade and work and abuse, um, then it's easy in a, in a broad sense for good people to get caught up in a system so pervasive. The prison industrial complex is global now, and it's only been around for about 45 years in the way that we know of it with private industry. And in that 45 years, they have taken just about much of the globe by storm. Their stocks are continually rising, and they provide a lot of jobs for a lot of people, like the state of Colorado, which is a huge prison industry, the state of Arizona, where they have guaranteed occupancies of up to 100%. And also where they ship in Hawaiians to a, a, a prison in Eloy. <laughs> like they're transferring people from Hawaii to go to Arizona to be in a prison built only for Hawaiians. So you can get caught up in this and play a role in it whether you want to or not. See, li- listen, buy, Max, listen. I'm yes. sorry to interrupt you. But I'm serious. I need to express to people that it's serious. Okay. It is serious. And you can't be operating on 30-year-old tactics when the battlefield looks a whole lot different than the 1960s, okay? 
You can't afford to ignore any enemy soldier for white supremacy based on his skin color. You need to be based on this action now. This is danger. Did this man, yeah, like, listen, here's this, right after he said what he said, here come a white supremacist Louisiana police chief. This is what he said. Hey, Mr. Effing President, when are you going to grow a, a freaking a effing pair and tell it like it is? These are terrorists. They have declared effing war on my brother. White police officers, enough is enough. Chief Dore ran it. Well, they, he ended up getting fired. This police chief ended up getting fired. Now he might go underground and hook up with the rest of his white supremacists in the movement. You see what I'm saying? This is, this people, this ain't a game. This ain't a game. What David Clark is doing is dangerous. It don't matter who he's doing it for or even what he's doing it for. The the, What matters is he threatening our children. He threatening us. He calling for us to be exterminated. And we want to talk about, oh, but who is he working for and, and who benefits the most and all. Man, throw that out the window. This is war that they are openly telling you they waging on you. We ain't got time to play games. Max, I need to, yeah, they, man. They senators come on and congressmen come on national television saying things like the subgroups known as minorities, which is an absolute lie right there from the start, have not contributed to anything to civilization. Only Europeans have done, contributed to civilization. We got mayors calling uh, Michelle Obama a gorilla. Other mayors saying we all look like monkeys. Police chiefs doing this. We can't function amongst people like that who are in those positions. They control our lives. They have our lives in their hands, and they hate us before they walk out the door. You know why they fired that chief? See, see, y'all can say violence don't solve nothing, and I'm not on here to condone violence, and I'm not here to condemn violence. If you want to say violence never is the answer, then you need to be talking to the commander-in-chief of the largest, one of the largest, but the most deadly military force on the planet. Now we're starting to see that chief down there where you at, Max. I read about him. He got fired, right? Now we got another police who got fired. How long had they been saying these things? How long had these things been saying, been said by these police chiefs? Donald, I mean, uh, what you call it up there, been saying it for two years in Wisconsin. All right. But while all of a sudden now a couple, you know, they are saying zero tolerance from, from this type of open white supremacist language. That's apparently what they're saying. Zero tolerance. You got to go. Why? Why you think they doing that? Why you think? Do you do you think it's as a uh, as a result of the marches and stuff that's been going on for 40, 50 years? Look, I'm not trying to tell nobody to do nothing. I'm just a, uh, an observer of the battlefield, and I just think it's awful funny now that um, some people in some of these cities want to get serious about races races in the police. We got uh, a phone. We need to take our first break. Uh, I don't know if your hunting is with us yet. No, he's not, but we got a, a caller. We'll come to the caller after the first break, Max. Okay. I'm sorry. First break, I want to talk a little bit about Gretna because Gretna is a great mi- microcosm example to show people. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages.
2008, providing new black media for the masses. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, you said we had a caller on the line, Spider Oh, uh, yes, we do. I believe this is Brother Davis, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Your line is unmuted. Go ahead, yes, caller. Yes, this is Brother Scotty. Yes, this is. Yeah, Brother Davis calling. Hey, look, man, I, I wanted to, uh, you guys do an excellent job about about going about placing your concepts and your ideas in the right place. Scotty, I'm going to tell you something. I, I identify with a lot of what you say. And the re- maybe it's because we're both veterans, and we now we both know that the target that's been placed on our back has been, should I say, neonized. But the reality is, there has been nothing or no proof or no evidence to prove any of these stories that they have created to appear as though black men are flipping out and killing white people. The sad part about it is that they really don't need no proof with the state of America the way it is. But I challenge anybody to ask them directly, where are the bodies? How come you could take a bomb and blow up somebody that you already have in a situation of peril, but yet you feel that the only solution you got is to blow them up with a bomb, that tells me that you got something to hide. And I don't know what it is yet, but I do know this. From your past history, nothing would surprise me. Mm. So literally, I think that they're trying to target us ex... And here's what gets me. Us ex-veterans that have military training with something that neither... They haven't even demonstrated a veteran was connected with. And all of the due diligence that I have found, I'm finding that more and more people are inclined to believe that this are two false flags to be able to present to America as if African-Americans are ready to start a race war. Brother Davis, I have a a comment about that. I'm not sure it's a false flag, and I'm going to be real about it because false flags in my study uh, tend to create massive casualties, civilian casualties. The point is it's like 9-11, you know, massive civilian casualties, uh, don't tell you who was really behind it, but then point you to an enemy like, oh, Saddam had something to do with it, or or the Taliban had something to do with it. Um, but so because there were not mass civilian casualties, there were really no civilian casualties. I'm inclined, I'm inclined not to believe that these are false flags. Um, I do from looking at history. This isn't the first time black men and black veterans have engaged in, in that sort of activity. There have been books written about it. But it, but I hear what you're saying. We should be suspicious of everything. But at the same time, let's not also, let's not also, if these brothers did commit the ultimate sacrifice, let's not, you know what I'm saying, erase what they did by, you know, without proof that it was a false flag. I don't think we have any proof either way. You know, we have it. We no, have. We don't, and that's that's what bothers me. Yeah, we don't have any proof either way, but yet 
the story has been framed. But they've I mean, been trying right to now, frame it on pin it on Black Lives Matter. And that's absolutely something that has not false flag or not. Nobody has connect nobody involved with the investigation has connected this to Black Lives Matter. But David Clark and all these other talking heads and other pundits is trying to connect these you know, like the one I just read. This is serious. They trying absolutely. to amp these people up to kill our children. Absolutely. And you know the sad part about that is that the largest percentage of America literally are not going to understand the totality of what you said. The largest percentage of America really are going to follow his storyline as if, oh, well, it's okay. It's not exciting. It's not okay. The sad part about it is there will be more victims coming out of this here based on their innocence than anything else. So uh, I just wanted to put that out there, man. And uh, I appreciate it. I, I, like I say, I enjoy the show. That's why I listen. Thank you. Thank you. I'll go back into the queue now. <laughs> Word. Uh, you both right. You got excellent points there. That they would Q and A Q is cleared. I, I would imagine that that is part of a tactic from COINTELPRO, which is real, right there. I would like to uh, go on to a story that we've gotten. You know, we got so many of them this week. Just so we'll never be able to get them all out. So I just want to get some out that uh, I think will make a difference and make an impact as far as awareness is concerned. So let's point to a place called Gretna, Louisiana, and an article from Fusion. Before this you do that, court. Max, I'm, I'm I'm sorry. I need yes. to take this phone call. It has something to do with the server. So uh, please continue. I, I'll join you as soon as I can. I need to take this call. Okay, Scotty. When you cross into the New Orleans suburb of Gretna, Louisiana, over the Crescent City Connection Bridge, there is no sign that says, Welcome to the arrest capital of the United States. There's no cutout or smiling cop telling you to be careful and not violate any local laws. There's no warning telling you that all of all the large cities and mid-sized towns in the country, this is the one in which you are most likely to be arrested. In fact, it is. Na- <laughs> Excuse me. Nationally, Gretna is known as the place where, as Katrina's floodwaters stubbornly refused to recede, police stood at the end of a bridge, guns drawn, to block the crowds who were trying to evacuate New Orleans. It is a reputation the suburb suburban refuge has spent a decade trying to live down. Gretna has an elegant, if largely empty, turn-of-the-century downtown and new riverfronts, condos with a view of New Orleans that starts at around $349,000. What you would not know from just walking through its well-manicured downtown is that even in Louisiana, a state that leads the country in arresting and imprisoning people, Gretna stands out for the frequency with which it makes arrests. In 2013, the Gretna Police Department made 6,566 adult arrests, or a little more than one arrest for every three of Gretna's roughly 18,000 residents. Although arrest data includes non-residents, that's about 14 times the rate of arrests in the typical American town. According to Fusion's analysis of FBI arrest data, and in a town that is about a third African Americans, two thirds of those arrests arrested in Gretna are black. An overall rate of roughly eight arrests for every nine black adults. I have to say that again. An overall rate of roughly eight arrests 
for every nine black adults. Think about that for a second. If you happen to work in an office, try to visualize eight out of nine of your colleagues getting pulled away in handcuffs. The number of arrests that Gretna makes could make you assume that Gretna is a dangerous place. In fact, the opposite is the case. In 2013, exactly 49 adult arrests by the Gretna Police Department were for the serious violent offense of murder, rape, robbery, or aggravated assault. About a tenth of adult arrests, 652, were for drug violations, putting Gretna near the very top of the country in per capita drug arrests. But the bulk of the arrests are even less consequential, with 948 arrests for drunkenness or disorderly conduct and 4,258 arrests in the category of other offenses, not significant enough for the FBI to track. This is relatively, this relatively peaceful suburb arrests people at five times the rate of Baltimore. It has a higher arrest rate than Myrtle Beach, a town whose population regularly swells with hundreds of thousands of vomiting college students. At the other end of the scale, the Gretna police make about 30 times as many arrests as the cops in Cupertino, California, a city three times Gretna's size. By any measure, this is an extraordinary rate, which Gretna's police chief acclaim, exclaims this way. A lot of the people I, that I've seen, they've been arrested on warrants. When they either don't show up in court or for whatever reason, they end up with another warrant, says Chief Arthur Lawson. And then here we are arresting them again. Now, I'm going to read just a little bit more of this, and then I, you can read the rest of it on New Abolitionist Radio. It says Louisiana is, an avid, is avid in collecting money from a great variety of criminal fines. There are traffic fines, of course, but there are also fines for not paying the fines, fines for missing court, payment for getting convicted, and payment for probation. If you are convicted, you pay the cost of court, and if you are lucky enough to avoid jail, you pay, as Graham Bosworth, the New Orleans lawyer in Jefferson County Public Defender puts it, for the privilege of being supervised. In Jefferson, Paris, you even pay a $45 fee that goes to the fu to fund public defenders. In this tedious process of collections, Jefferson Parish, the country that surrounds Gretna, <coughs> is a pace setter. In 2014, the state put out a report urging its court system to be more vigorous in collecting fees, pointing to the parish's 24th Judicial Circuit Court as a model, thanks to an increase in collections of 1,100% in 14 years, unpaid fees yield more penalties, which yield the threat of more jail. The fees create even more incentive for the state to issue more penalties to support its courts. The criminal justice system exists mainly to make society safer, and it has lost sight of that goal, Bosworth said. Instead, it has become a system that exists largely to fund itself. You can reach the rest of it on New Abolitionist Radio. Yeah. Uh, that is, Scotty Reed is not back. Are you there, Scotty? Yeah, I'm back. Here's the problem with that scenario is that they think the justice system was created to, or law enforcement was to create it to prevent crime or to even stop crime. Look, there were very, very, very little crime. Maybe somebody stole a chicken or stole some eggs in the 1600s or the 1700s or something like that. I mean, we can even go back to after the Civil War. Look, it wasn't no whole bunch of crime. They created crime. Now, you know, don't don't take get taken 
taken aback when I quote uh, a conservative icon, even though conservatives have tried to argue with me about it. I'm taking her words out of context. But that woman said, I named Ann Rand, said that said that the uh, only function of the government is to crack down on criminals. And if cri- and if enough criminals don't exist, well, they create them. See, you can pass a law right now. If you pass the law um, tomorrow saying chewing gum is a crime, then all the people that's making gum, guns, I mean gum, then, you know, they in violation of the law. Everybody, the gum dealers and the people who chew gum, addicted, they're criminals now. So that's the whole, that's a, that he's coming from a false narrative when, when they say the criminal justice system was created to crack down on crime. That's not why it was created. It was created to crack down on, on, on uh, free black people and, and enslaved Africans. That's what it was created for. Well, you know, in support of what you're saying, the, there is another paragraph in there where they say that in 2013, Ferguson took in 2.5 million in municipal court fines and fees, or close to $117 for every residence. By comparison, Gretna, which is slightly smaller than Ferguson, took in 5.8 million in municipal court fines and fees, or about 324 per resident. Uh, so it's shown that they're setting this up, and they also mentioned about how they, con- the the state contacted or the city contacted the police in order to increase the fines that they were putting out. So they brought those up to almost six million dollars, and they're smaller than Ferguson. And Ferguson was determined by the Justice Department to have been violating the Constitution in in a number of ways. See, the media, the mainstream media, all of this operates on fear, you know. That's why you see all of these paper called the slammers that have everybody that got arrested in your town, had a mug shot in there. You know, it's to create the appearance that all this crime is going on. You know, people like to use, you know, the outlier of Chicago to, to say, look at all this violent crime that's going on, you know, and what have you. But violent crime, on, on you know, on the whole is, is going down. It's going down, so they operating off of fear, man. That I mean, even what did they tell you about the African? The African is a beast. He he he's a beast. Uh, he's not a human being. He's more animal-like. If, if you leave him to his own devices, he will rape all the women and and do. A, they had to paint this picture of this beast so that in people's minds they could justify the enslavement of those human beings and whatnot. And the same things are done today with all of this fear, this fear, this you know. In, in, instead of addressing the root causes of the crime that is out there, which is mainly property crime and and stuff like that. Well, you know, people unless you a kleptomaniac. Nobody really wants to take the risk of breaking into another person's house to steal something so they could sell it, you know, so that they can then buy food or pay bills. But that really does happen, you know. So they don't want to address those issues, man. They they want to spend trillions of dollars on the war machine and bribing other nations, and, and they don't want to take care of their own people. And so then when the people turn on each other by, you know, robbing each other, trying to survive and whatnot, you know, then you got your justification for slavery. I mean, man, it, it's just, Max, I'm, I'm tired of this world, man. 
Why is it not that we don't have more people who see what's really going on, that this is no different than 1800s? If it were 1816, the same stuff that was going on in 1816 is going on today, and for the same reason. Yeah, it's literally that is the case, <clears throat> Scotty, for the same reasons. And it's going to divide this country, um, and I'm hoping that we can change the outcome rather than just keep repeating the same history over and over again. It's just too many lives on the line. But, you know, the Gretna story also emphasizes the fact that we're being dehumanized. Like, you think you can just do this to us and nothing will come of it. I mean, you protect wildlife more than you protect the black community. I mean, if we were some kind of uh, different, if we were an animal, for instance, out in the field, there would at least be poaching laws to keep us from going extinct. But you think you can just come into our communities, take away the breadwinners, take away the men, take away the kids, take away the mothers, and it has no effect on not only us as people and a community and a city, but as a nation, a nation altogether. That you think that has no effect? And it does. It's, it's destroying us. It's a form of genocide when you put all these men in the prisons during their, their lives like this. The same thing with the women. But, okay, I'm preaching to the choir. If you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio, you do know a few things already. And we are here trying to provide uh, some logical reasons and some legitimate uh, solutions. And that solution is end slavery. It's not that difficult to see to understand just end slavery but first you got to recognize it right it may not be difficult it shouldn't be difficult to understand but i'm under no illusion that it's going to be difficult to abolish it because they've been doing yeah. it people greater than me have tried and we still uh, fighting so uh whatever uh happened that critical mass that caused that critical mass to push us uh into um, uh, uh, so many people to fight to end slavery, you know what I'm saying, during the Civil War. We need that again, you know, and we're trying to provide that, but we need more of that. The North Stars and, uh, and uh, abolitionist papers and, and all of that. And, you know, we got these, uh, these police who are closing ranks, the police union uh, issuing statements like saying that the Alton Sterling shooting was more than justified when, you know, now we know that he wasn't even the person they had been called about. And uh, they came and shot him right there at point blank range. And uh, just to be able to come out as a police union, representing all the police in that area, and say these things is like threatening all of us. Like, you know, we're going to get away with this every time. Every damn time. We're going to close ranks. We don't care if they're guilty or not. We're going to protect our own. And that's how you treat it. So, you know... What do, we, what do you want us to do? People are pushed to the edge. They're, they've lost everything. The only thing they've got left to give is their life, and that's because of your actions. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. That was from JFK, and it's very true. They know this stuff, man. They know and watch the RNC convention and the things that are being said and how it's primarily now all about race and the vitriol and hate that was practiced. <clears throat> you know, there was some symbolism I saw where the woman from uh, Pink, Operation Pink or whatever they're called, had a sign that said, 
no racism, no hate, or something along those lines. And several men with United States flags kept trying to cover her up so it couldn't be seen. It simply said no hate, no racism. Why would you want to cover that up? Do you not agree with her? What is the problem there? So it, that was some symbolism. And, uh, you know, everything from just stealing people's words, like you really just don't care, outright lying about circumstances, and then blaming it all on people of color. You, you, you know, it's hard to not say now that the RNC is not a white, racist, supremacist organization leading us towards a mass extinction of people of color. You're declaring war on your own citizens. What if it's your daughter? What if you're like the mayor of New York and you got a biracial child? You want to watch him get killed in the street too? I guess the answer sometimes would be yes, because back in the day, they did that same thing. Sold their own children off, beat their own children, raped their own children. And, and, just, and I, I'm mad. Scotty. Yes. Interject when you want to, brother. Interject anytime you want. Yeah. Maybe let's get on to the next story, right? Yeah, let's move to the next story. I admit, man, passions is high. You know, I, I you're going through a lot. I'm going through some stuff, you know, and I'm just angry, man, because, you know, I, I'm just beside myself with this man threatening my children. I'll be in Kansas City on September 24th for the Missouri Procure Conference as his keynote speaker. And I've already been told that my life is in danger. <laughs> but I'm going, you know what I mean? Especially now that another policeman has been killed right there in Kansas City and the people are going through what they are going through and we're right just not too far from uh, where Mike Brown was killed and a lot of this stuff began but I'm going and I'm going to bring the truth with me whether the police or anybody else like it or not uh, hopefully you can become part of solution rather than part of the problem but you're asking for new thinking you're asking for new ideas and that's what we're bringing to you a new idea that this is not a mistake it is on purpose and this is slavery and human trafficking sanctioned by the U.S. Constitution and exploited by not only private industry, but also state and government and local um, governments, state, and f state, federal, and local governments. I mean, you're out hunting people. Even in the Gretna story, they went on to say that this uh, officer swear filed a lawsuit saying that they have an arrest quota in Gretna and he was terminated because he uh, put questioned it and refused to follow it and he even contacted the FBI okay I mentioned the, the uh, police union who issued a statement so let's read his statement okay <laughs> Oh, but you said a police union. Uh, just want to give a shout out to the young people that who have chained themselves to the sled catcher's doors and won't let them get into work. <laughs> Dude, man, I've seen videos now where they've turned it into a sport to run protesters over. I was I just saw a picture earlier where there's a sticker on a guy's car that says, and it's a sticker of a monster truck rolling over people saying, I don't break for protesters. And they turned it into a sport to, to maim us and kill us and, and saying it publicly with nobody doing anything about it. But here we are with the Alton Sterling uh, murder and the Miami police union said it was more than justified. He said, it's from Xavier Ortiz, Miami's outspoken police union chief. 
obituary letters, opinions fly whenever law enforcement issues make national headlines. Famously, he called for the boycott of Beyonce's latest concert in Miami after the artist Black Panther referencing Super Bowl performance earlier this year. He also called Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old boy shot by Cleveland police for holding a toy gun in the street, a thug. Clearly, he does not fear outrage. Earlier this week, Ortez shared his thoughts about the shooting of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, a gruesome killing caught on camera that began a week of national protest that has led into today's funeral ceremony, where a number of black leaders have gathered to decry police violence. But Miami's own police union chief believes the shooting is more than justified. Many people are afraid to say that the police officers involved in the Sterling sick shooting were more than justified, Ortiz wrote. He was armed with a gun, which this felonious child molester wasn't supposed to have. Where was BLM, Black Lives Matter, when he was molesting a child? The FOP stand with these officers. But Horatio Stewart Aguero, president of Miami's civilian investigative panel, which investigates complaints against Miami officers, says Ortiz's opinions in this case are inappropriate. I respect the lieutenant's thinking, but it's about absolutely warped thinking, he says. In his mind, any time a cop fires a gun, it's justified. Well, that story is on New Abolitionist Radio. And again, this is the where you see, see the again, who are we, we, of making the rules hate us from the very beginning. And they're out to see us dead. And you don't expect us to die? I mean, see, these are people that you can't sit down and talk to, man, because they just they just racist. You know, Black Lives Matter was not created to address uh, diabetes. It wasn't these people didn't come together to address, you know, sickle cell anemia or anything like that. They didn't try. They didn't come together to try to find a cure to cancer. They came together to try to find to stop all of these extrajudicial murders of black people and in in a uh uh focus on the slave catchers and whatnot. You know, um but we have all these false arguments. Oh, where's Black Lives Matter when it comes to do you know, with all these abortions and and all of this other stuff and, and ain't got nothing all of that is is a tactic to muddy the waters to change the conversation to something that they ain't that's not even related. It's not even related. If you want to talk about crime, that's what you, the police was hired to do. So you mean you telling us you can't do the job then, then what the hell we need you for? Let us police our own community. You just admitting that crime is so prevailing in our communities, then what the hell you we need you for? Because you're not stopping the crime. You're not preventing any crime, so why are we paying you? If you want Black Lives Matter to address the crime, then turn in your guns and badges and we'll patrol our own damn communities. You know, we've got recordings that have come out recently, like from the New York Police Department captain who was telling one of his subordinates that he should arrest more young black males, specifically target them, stop them and target them and do what he was calling is a pop. And, you know, the pop is the entrapment. It's where you just stop them and you uh, run their name, and if a warrant shows up, you got an arrest. 
It's really just that simple. And it's one of the uh, key features of the stop this. But he was insisting that this officer do this on purpose. And the officer argued with him, saying, look, I'm stopping anybody who's doing something wrong in front of me. I'm not predicting who's doing something. I'm stopping the people doing it wrong. What are you trying to tell me? And you can hear this. This is what the leading officers are telling them to do. You'll hear more when we come back on the other side. We're going to take a break. We'll be right, right back after these messages. We're listening to that the black talk radio network is made possible in part with help from the black talk media project a north carolina based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. Tuned in to Black Talk Radio, new black media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, we're just going to continue the conversation that we've been having and how all this applies to modern day slavery and human trafficking, because that is the core issue that we're dealing with, and that's what our focus here at New Abolitionist Radio is about to show you that this is not multiple issues. This is one single issue with multiple fronts being fought. And uh, um, different... Max, I just yes. have a quick announcement, um, if you don't mind. Um, we the uh, we are The radio server is back online, so uh, let awesome. me go ahead and let everybody know um, that the radio server, and we're streaming live again on Black Talk Radio Network's digital radio station, providing you with new black media for the new millennium. And thank you to uh, my guy uh, who helped me resolve that situation. Great job. Word, man. I'm glad of that. Uh, for a while there, I didn't think that we have a program today. And considering so many things is going on, uh, I'm pretty sure that we it, it's valuable for us to bring some logic into this madness at this point. Um, people need to hear something that makes sense to them. And I believe that this makes sense, uh, and many others believe the same thing. And we also want these candidates, third-party candidates who are out there running to understand that this is not just a few people. There's a lot of us who agree and feel the very same way. Uh, a lot of listeners internationally here on New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we have thousands of members on Move to Abolish 21st Century rate, uh, Slavery and Human Trafficking on our planning pages and various other organizations that we're a part of. So this is no small chunk of the population. This is a lot of people who believe this. And if you can't find it in you to put this topic at the top of your to-do list, you're really wasting a lot of potential support that you could have. At one point, we were going to put it behind uh, Bernie Sanders. But uh, we never did do that because we understood what we were dealing with from the very beginning. We do appreciate the Justice is Not the Sale Act thing that he put out, though. That's good um, until he gets killed by 
Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> who's working on behalf of private prison industries. Anyway, one more story, one of these sad stories, and then uh, maybe we'll change the pace of things. But I'm just going to show you how extreme it has gotten and just how careless these uh, police organizations have become. Apparently, there was a young man who had been shot in front of his entire family by police who decided they were going to serve a warrant at his father's funeral. Uh, we have two sources for this to confirm it. Uh, I got one here that is, uh, I'll read to you. Uh, it says, July 1st, 2016 to 26 p.m. Here is a statement from the Catholic Diocese of Cheyenne about the shooting that took place outside of a church yesterday afternoon. We are saddened by the untimely loss of life in any circumstances, but the fact that this happened <clears throat> following a funeral liturgy when friends and family members were already grieving and outside of a house of worship where people seek solace makes this situation all the more troubling. Even in the face of growing violence and other culture, we expect as a civil society, civil society and courage as a community of faith that we make a stronger commitment to peaceful resolutions and enforcement of laws and a demonstration of greater respect for human life and the common good, the press release said. On Thursday, June 30th, deputy U.S. marshals were involved in a line-of-duty shooting incident in Converse County, Wyoming, while attempting to apprehend fugitive, fugitive Jason Scott Ramirez, who was wanted on drug charges. During the attempted arrest, Ramirez was shot he was immediately transported to a local medical facility where he later died of his injuries. No law enforcement officers were injured. The Wyoming Division of Criminal Investigations is the lead investigative agency for this incident. As a matter of policy, the Marshal Service will not release the names of de deputy marshals involved in the shootings incident until the conclusion of all investigations surrounding the incident. As this is an ongoing investigation, we cannot provide further comment. Um, wow Like who makes these decisions Like we're going to take this warrant And go to this man's Father's funeral While he's there with his children And serve the warrant there Because we know he's going to be there So that's a good place to go do it right That just Is there no humanity in you At all <laughs> No compassion is there no sand in the, what is it, Gilead? No bomb in Gilead? I'm going to read one of the statements from the family members. Reneo Cisneros, a close family friend who lives in Casper, who attended the funeral, said that she spotted the agents when she arrived. She arrived late and said they were, there were three individuals parked near the church who looked out of place. When she entered, she said she took a seat in the back during the service, Ramirez sat near the front sobbing. She said he was too upset to take communion. Following the funeral, she saw the agents again. She said she was getting ready to go over and talk to Ramirez and give him a hug, but then she heard shots, about seven of them. She said she couldn't process what was happening. She looked over and saw him leaning on the car door. It looked like he was getting into the passenger side when he was shot, she said. She said he had been Shocked with a stun gun, too. He appeared lifeless. Well, I'm going to read just this last little bit of this, and then I, I don't think I can handle any more of this. Cries rang out, rang out 
from the dozens of onlookers who just watched their family member get gunned down by police at his own father's funeral. That's my dad, Ramirez's son yelled out, according to Cisneros. Mm. Scotty, can you take it from here just for a second? Um, sure, sure, I sure can. Um, give me just a moment. I am trying to get all of our radio streams um, back online now that the server is back online, so I'm a little bit distracted. I apologize for that. Um, but uh, what's the next story? Let me uh, go ahead and pull up the next story. Uh, by the way, if any lis- listeners have any questions or comments, you can give us a call at 641 641- 715-3660 the participant code is 549-032 pound and of course it starts 6 and 1 um, the next story uh, that I want to share with you um, half of the arrestees by St. Anthony Police in 2016 are black and this is coming to you from the Star Tribune um, I guess uh, this is up in uh, Minnesota um, it says police in a suburban St. Paul area where a black man was shot and killed during a traffic stop have disproportionately arrested African Americans according to an analysis of data provided by the department that shows nearly half of the people arrested this year in the heavily white community were black. Um, the St. Anthony Police Department provided arrest and citation data in response to requests from the Associated Press and other media after the death of 32-year-old Philando Castile. You mean after the killing of uh, Philando Castile, who was shot several times by an officer in Falcon Heights last year. His death and other recent killings of black men by police around the country have renewed concerns about how law enforcement officers interact with minorities. And and y'all pretty much uh, know the rest of the story. Um, But again, we have people who will sit up there and and swear to you that um, racism doesn't exist, that it was done away with in the 60s. You know, we used to have racist police and departments back in the 60s. But we got rid of those with the civil right, the passage of the Civil Rights Act and all of that kind of that kind of garbage. But when you start bringing up the statistical data, well, then they start talking about, well, well, blacks commit more crime. Look, people, we done heard this for how many years now? I mean, at, at times I even get tired of reporting it because all the stories sound the same data. Whether we what you know, it's important that we put it out there, but. Story after story after story after story where there's actually a look at data. I mean, it's undeniable that institutional racism exists. Look, I'm not really I'm not going to say I'm not concerned about racism, but I don't care about the personal feelings of some racist cracker that live up the street or down the street or wherever he live. What concerns me is institutional racism because the institution has power has power to take my life, has power to take my, my freedom, and has power to take my liberty. And I don't think you can ever get rid of hate. Come on, man. If we could get rid of hate, man, that would, yeah. we would live in a utopia, man. Come on. But you'll never get rid of hatred that personals, persons have in their heart. But what you can do 
is 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 prevent them from harming other people uh through their positions in, in of authority in the state all right so again man you know when you look at when you start looking at every department and breaking down the data i can i probably could even go to mount holly police department little old two i think they might got three cops on the whole on the whole force or something like that you know i probably could go down there and look at their data and find the same thing that even though you know what i'm saying that it's it's majority white around here they probably stopping and giving more tickets to black people you know why because I, I mean that's how institutional racism work man and so i mean it sounds redundant to keep reporting these things but you know we have to keep reporting until uh the people that's in power uh, provide a solution yes we do Scott. which is to and stop slavery in slavery don't even provide a solution yeah in they slavery is my solution in slavery abolition right right a real solution a real solution that we can all agree on um there's a story that's out now about Mississippi. We talk a lot about Mississippi here on New Abolitionist Radio, in particular because of several reasons. Uh, one being its longest running ever commissioner prison system in the whole state, uh, being in corrupt and working with private prisons uh, and for payoffs to put people in the prisons and provide contracts to different service providers. At one point, he was going from bank to bank to bank, depositing $9,900, you know what I mean? There was a big uh, story from Rachel Maddow that came out about it. You can see that on New Abolitionist Radio. But now they've got a big complaint going on in Mississippi, Scotty, and their complaint is that Mississippi jails are losing inmates, and local officials are devastated by the loss of revenue. They, they don't care. See, devastated by the loss of revenue. Devastated by the loss of revenue. I mean, just that sentence right there is all you need to know. <laughs> devastated by the loss of revenue. See, Mississippi's under investigation, and Christopher Epps is turning state evidence that may implicate many police chiefs and could possibly go all the way up into the governor. Uh, and when we talk about crimes against humanity, this is one of those examples of it on an epic scale where they stole like a billion dollars in just a year uh, from the state budget to do these things. And where judges were coming into the uh, youth detention facilities to inspect them and saying that they'd never seen anything so bad, that they were cesspools of constitutional violations done on children on children where they were being raped and murdered and abused, not just by fellow inmates, but by the guards themselves. They're living in the most horrible conditions. So they had to stop doing what they were doing on that scale, and now it's costing them money. And they're not con concerned with the human aspect. What they're concerned with is the loss of money. This comes out from the Huffington Post. County officials across Mississippi, a warning of job losses and deep deficiencies as local jails are being deprived of the state inmates needed to keep them afloat. The culprit, says local officials, the state government and private prisons, which are loose looking to boost their own revenue as sentencing and drug policy reforms are sending fewer bodies into the correctional system. The reforms, because of what Christopher Epps uh, ended up doing. In any case, it says in the late 1990s, 
at the overcrowded Mississippi prison system buckled under the weight of mass incarceration. The state asked local governments to build local correctional institutions to house state prisoners. It was billed as a win-win. The Mississippi Department of Correction would foot the bill for each prisoner, and the counties would get good jobs guarding them. The state guaranteed that the local jails would never be less than 80% occupied, and the locals would get a 3% boost in compensation each year. Wow. You know, when I read these things, it even shocks me sometimes. One more time. The state guaranteed that the local jails would never, ever, 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 ever. Now, how do you guarantee something? How do you guarantee something like that? How do you guarantee that? You got to have a corrupt police force in order to make such a promise. You got to have people. You got to have people. Exactly. You got to have people who are willing to go along with that kind of slave catching. So it goes on to say after a few years, say local officials, the state offered a new deal. Instead of the 3% bump, they would give the locals more and more prisoners, thus boosting total revenue. Today, the state pays $29.74 per day per prisoner to the regional facilities, a deal that worked for everybody as long as the buildings were stuffed full with bodies. Scott Strickland, president of the Stone County Board of Supervisors, says reforms at the state and local levels have shrunk the prison population. Federal laws took some part in that, allowing prisoners to serve only a certain percentage of their term. He also he said also they reduced prison sentences for certain drug-related offenses. As the wave of mass incarceration begins to recede, the Mississippi controversy has local and state officials talking openly about how harmful locking up fewer people up will be for the economy. Confirming the suspicions of those who have argued that mass incarceration is not merely a strategy directed at crime prevention under the administrations of Reagan and Clinton, incarceration, a social tool used for punishment, also became a major job creator. Antonio Moore, a producer of the documentary Crack in the System, wrote recently, I don't think it's necessarily started out this way, but the inmate population has become the backbone of some of these counties that are involved, said Mississippi Corrections Commissioner Marshall Fisher, as the controversy heated up. Uh, You can read the rest of that on New Abolitionist Radio on our Facebook page, but you see what they're talking about right there. Again, Um, it's all about the money. Where have we heard this before? Where 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 have we heard that before, Max? About it a hurt, <laughs> you know? It, Texas, yeah, uh, in Texas, also in Colorado, Ca- California. We can't. Hey, we need these prisoners to fight fires. You know, California have all these wildfires. It, you would deplete us of our our labor pool. That's what they argue with the Supreme Court, right? The uh, uh, California Attorney General's office. Yeah, that's right. That was um, the, the argument with the Supreme Court, as you as you just said. I can't remember the Attorney General who said it out in California. Um, if Johanna was here, he would know her name right off that. Yeah. And you know, I can't. Nonetheless, I do remember specifically she's saying Kamala that, Harris uh, is her name, and she just got endorsed dollars a year yeah. in salaries if they were to actually hire real firefighters instead of paying uh, inmates, including juveniles, up to $2 a day to risk their lives. That's Kamala Harris. She just got Kamala endorsed Harris. by President Obama and Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So she's running for co- uh, uh, Senate, right? I think she's running for the Senate. They are very, very much aware of the circumstances, and they find it acceptable. But we do not find it acceptable, and we don't want you to find it acceptable. I don't think you should find it acceptable at all that your children are seen as nothing more than fuel for this prison industry to be able to create jobs. They would much prefer, from what you just heard right here, to keep 100 people employed for the next 10 years rather than not lock up 100,000 people. So now, your lives, 100,000 people's lives are worth their salaries. You know, when you read these stories like this, and again, this isn't anything new, you know, uh, but how how then, just think about it. This is the 1800s, y'all. We live in the 1800s. How are you going to tell a, a, a slave how to rebel or how to resist slavery? So, uh, you know, people want to complain about people tactics and whatnot. Everybody, you know, I, in my opinion, they just need to do something, do whatever they think is best. And I'm not here to judge them or to condemn them or anything like this. But you just heard flat out from public officials that their concern is all about money. Who who provides the money? Well, the black bodies. Where the, How the black bodies provide the money? Well, by filling up the jails. I mean, you can't get any more simple than that. You know, they allegedly started a civil war and lots of people died over this kind of treatment right here of black people. And we just going to let it keep happening right there in our face. Man. We have to do what we can to end this. And it's going to take people of all walks of life with all kinds of ideas. I just heard a young brother today trying to tell us, uh, that we should try this on a spiritual level and not talk for seven days and then stay, not go out the house and just do this in unison and clear ourselves. And this is a weird, a weird thing to say, but it's just an example of people who go to any extremes because right. they see what's going on. They're looking to find ways into other dimensions to get the hell away from here <laughs> to solve this problem. And, you know, and history has shown us that when it gets this bad, people turn towards violence. You can't negotiate with them. You can't tell them not to do that. They decide for themselves, not because somebody told them, but with their own eyes, they have seen these things and decided this is their course of action. The same thing applies to these crazy-ass police who do the same thing. We have decided that our lives uh, need to be snuffed out, that we are slime who need to be eradicated, and they commence to doing so. There's a, a brother today that I was talking with on Facebook, uh, interacting with him, uh, courtesy of another friend, and we was trying to tell him to just go ahead and look at some of this information, because he was giving this argument about how people deserve to be in prison, and I had given the numbers of what the costs are for each uh, of these prison industries, jail, probation, and parole, and prison separately, and it was in a trillion, over a trillion. Just the jails alone is like ungodly amounts of cost. And finally, after much arguing, using a white racist narrative, he finally decided to go read the 13th Amendment. But he spent like a half an hour and wrote maybe 10 pages of stuff where he could have just read these two paragraphs from the very beginning. And then rather than admit his wrong after reading it, he said, what part of uh, 
committing a crime allows you to be a slave is confusing. Isn't that okay? I mean, what's wrong with that? This was a black man, allegedly, talking about what's wrong with becoming a slave if you commit a crime. I was taken aback, Scotty, and uh, I had to step away from that, brother, because those are the type of people I can't communicate with. Yeah. I can't argue with somebody who has already decided something and doesn't even want to listen to reason, doesn't want to look at evidence, just wants to go by what they think and what they feel. Or what, what they opinions. heard. Yeah, what they heard. And oftentimes that's information put into your mind by someone else. Uh, by people with a an agenda, like literally. And if you don't follow through and find out if it's true or not, that means what you're talking about is nothing more than manure. <laughs> like, it's just BS. And the foundations of your beliefs are built on sand. So it's not a good idea to uh, argue with people like that. And I'm not the no, only one who has come to the conclusion. No, it's not, man. And I'm trying to get better at that, you know, of... Uh, just walk away you know what I'm saying just walk away cause like I was talking about this earlier on Tanya Free and Friends show and you know I was listening to one of the guys on the panel and he, he's been on the panal before but he, he's a so called black conservative or black republican and I'm like man I'm so sick of these labels I'm so sick of these labels cause they use labels to confuse everybody you know what I'm saying? And and so, you know, he up there talking about the black-on-black crime, the abortion rate in the community, and Black Lives Matter is a hate organization. And, and, and I could just tell this person watches Fox News 24-7. This, Fox, this person watches CNN. This person does not listen to New Abolitionist Radio. He does not read Alternate. He does not read, you know, any of these, The Intercept. You know, as a publication of independent journalists, they come to mind. I mean, there is no shortage of of real independent-based journalism, real journalism that's going on, the real journalism that is going to give you at least two or three sources, all right, that, that they can use to support what they're saying. But then when I hear a black man repeating what he heard David Clark say at the RNC and, and just typical, man, I can't, I, I can't, you're too old. You're like, you damn near 40, 45 years old, man, and you still think like this? I just can't. I just can't. So let me just put you down on the Confederate side, and, and I know when I see you coming that the enemy's coming. And, you know, some of these things are indisputable. You can just see the institutional racism and bias. For example, uh, the Philandro, uh, Philando Castillo murder recently. We just found out that um, the police scanner has a recording where the officer didn't stop him for a taillight. He stopped him for a wide nose. Police scanner recordings obtained by a local Minneapolis news station revealed that uh, St. Anthony police officer pulled over Philando Castile not because of a busted taillight, but because he looked similar to a robbery suspect due to his wide nose. <coughs> the startling dispatch recording indicates that not only was Castile seemingly racially profiled for his wide nose, his girlfriend says that officers lied when they claimed the stop was for a taillight that was out as the taillight was seen functioning in other videos taken at the scene of the incident. 
wide nose. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you. Life because somebody thought he had a wide nose. See, I and think he was looking to kill him too, man. This is wrong. Cause see, when you're making a felony stop like that, if you thought this was an armed burglar or somebody who just committed a robbery, you don't go up on the car like that. You be from behind the car and you ask the driver to exit the car. You don't walk up to the window like this normal traffic stop. I think this dude was looking to kill somebody, man. I mean, he had to, you know. You know, there's a story that among gangs, in order to be down for life, some gangs tell you to go out and kill an innocent victim. And that uh, makes you down for life. How do we know that's not the case in police departments, too? There's certain organizations in the police department. That in order to ensure that you will always be loyal, this will be held over you forever. Go kill somebody. How do we know? We don't. I'm All I know person. is the pro- if, if you really want to, th- this is the solution, and it's not hard. It's not hard. It ain't gonna take a whole lot of talking to do it. It's just gonna take some doing. Is if you get picked for the jury and we do need to occupy the jury box and stop allowing them to send people into slavery and vote not guilty for nonviolent victimless drug crimes and, and things of that nature. But then when, when we do have a cop that's put on trial and there's in, 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 irrefutable evidence, I'm not talking about just, you know, convicting cops because they kill somebody. No, let's convict the ones that are actually in um guilty there is enough evidence and let's convict them instead of letting them go that that will that will uh provide some accountability let's stop giving them free passes i mean people shouldn't have to march when there is video and what have you or witnesses of a murder and you and people shouldn't have to march and demand the prosecutor press charges because then when he do press charges, well, we see what happens. We see Tamir Rice's case. We see, you know, the cases in Chicago. Because they don't want to do it to begin with. So if you make them do it, well, what makes you think they're going to do a good job if they finally do it? So, I mean, it's just no accountability, man. We just need people to stop practicing racism and practice justice. It's that damn simple when you really break break it down. We don't need to have no meetings with the damn president and all everybody. We know what 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 justice looks like or should look like, but we certainly know what what injustice look like. Let's stop practicing injustice. Let's stop covering up for killer cops. Let's not if we see a cop murder somebody that you know a fellow cop murder somebody, shoot him in the back. Let's not then. Uh, file a false police report and say hey that man took his gun and was reaching for his gun and all this and that see what I'm saying I mean it's that simple you can't you can pass all the laws you want to you can put all the reforms in place that you want to but at the end of the day laws don't stop nobody from doing nothing they really don't we got laws on the book that say that say you know that it's a crime to murder somebody. They got different charges: involuntary manslaughter, you know, second degree murder. Third, you know, we don't need just charge the people and convict them. That's all. Just charge them and convict them. Don't help cover it up. That's the most simplest damn solution right there that we can implement. 
Yes. I, I want to be clear, too. I, you know, I'm not pointing my finger at just the cops. I know that they're, they, this is very compartmentalized. The police are doing their uh, enforcement of laws that they can't even protest against. They just enforce, which are written by many times by prison industry through organizations like Alec. So, I, you know, I understand where they're coming from, and I also know that... Well, I, I don't, Max. Max, I'm going to stop you right there, please. I don't. This is why I did not retire from the military. When I came into the awareness of what I was doing, my role in the United, in the grand scheme of things of being a pawn used to to uh, oppress another people and steal their oil and all of that, I got out. I said, I can't do this job. My conscience won't allow me. I, you just can't deploy me anywhere and, t- and point at some people and tell me to kill them or to help kill them. I could, my conscience, I quit, Max. I quit. It's that simple. Lay, if nobody's willing to be a slave catcher, then there's no slave catching going on. Now, again, I'm not one of them idiots that say, that say, oh, we don't need the police or anything like that. Well, you know, we don't need police. We need peace officers. You know, police need to be like firemen. You know, because yeah, just sit in the doggone station. You know what I'm saying? Start trying to pull people over for because you think they got some drugs on them and, and you're trying to meet quotas and stuff like that. See, we don't need that. Look, minimize, like Mr. Fuller said, if to minimize conflict, minimize contact. Let's minimize the contact that slave catchers have in communities. Let's make them stay in the damn police department until they're called out because there's a crime. You know? But when yeah, somebody so, is yeah. murdered, because all they're going to do is come out with the coroner and pick up the dead body and do the investigation and all of that. It's these patrol officers that are really make you know what I'm saying, that's on the front lines of slave catching. Not the investigators who investigate, the detectives who investigate murders and robberies, you know, not them. They don't do it in a vacuum. They yeah. don't do it in a vacuum. Somebody is providing the resources and finances to expand their numbers and uh, equip them with this gear. Someone is training them. Someone's pro- providing the in, uh, incentive. And then also, as I said, they're kind of compartmentalized because they're working in tandem with prosecutors who spend most of their time just plea bargaining to the point where the uh, Sixth Amendment is completely shattered and 95% of all convictions are done in backroom deals. They're also working with judges who are using you know, prejudice or uh, uh, don't even have any experience, like we've reported here in the little courts across the nation, like we're under that, uh, who are just using racism or bias in their actions and decisions. And they're also uh, are involved with the POs, you know, the uh, probation officers who are working for for-profit companies and are threatening people's lives and freedom if they don't pay these excessive fines like they do in Georgia. Um, same thing applies to so many different parts of the criminal justice system, all working in tandem to keep this thing going. If we took out that one component as you just mentioned with the police, for instance, and took that out of it. Yes, I think it will all fall down. Of course it would, because then you wouldn't need all those prosecutors or defense attorneys. And no, uh, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You you really wouldn't. It's not that. It's not that hard. You know. Now I know when Mister Fuller came up, he was talking about 
you know, black people and other non-white people when they have conflict with other non-white people. Well, if you know that you always going to have conflict with this person because of who they are, how they are, or whatever, what they believe, then minimize contact. Don't stress yourself out. Don't allow them to stress you out. Just, you know they're lost cause, so let them be lost in about their way. Minimize. So I'm, I can, we can apply that to policing. Minimize contact. There's no cause for this. You don't need to be stopping somebody because you don't like them sagging or any of this. Look, you know, the we're, it, it's just crazy. The contacts, the contacts that are going on every day that aren't even necessary. And it's all to generate revenue. Again, like you was reading earlier in the program, these reports, it generating revenue from ticketing, from just whatever, fines, levy. That's what it, minimize that contact. Minimize that contact. Let's push, we don't want, let's abolish patrol officers or at least make them stay in the damn department and you only get to come out when we need you for security for whatever football game or professional event or march or festival or something like but no you don't get to ride around in the hood just picking out well you know uh, any slave you know pick a slave playing the pick a slave game no stay out the community until you're called when we need you we'll call you when somebody breaking in my house i'll call you yeah come come pick up the dead body you know, from this fool that tried to break up into this house. You know, we'll call you when we need you because most of the time you're not saving nobody. People had to save themselves from criminals. You don't stop crime. You respond to it. So stay in the department. Then we'll call you when you we got something for you to respond to. Otherwise, stay out of our community. No right, no just riding around just for the sake of seeing who I can write a ticket today. Seeing who I can arrest for for public drunkenness or some other nonviolent victimless crime. It's crazy. And it's and yeah, and, and, so and, 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 and yeah, the solutions are simple. If you listen to them, that's not how they feel. Uh, one policeman recently published uh, publicly on his social media that if we really wanted to, dead, all we had to do is stop patrolling your neighborhoods. Did anybody so die you, when when um, the NYPD went on a little one-week strike? Did crime go up as a result of the NYPD getting mad like a bunch of petulant children because the mayor shared a public story about him having to talk with his son and they was like, okay, and the city lost what, 10 million a week in that week period? But crime did not go up. Crime actually went down. Went down. Went down. Why did crime go down? Because there was no cops making an arrest on some silly law to then record it as a crime. So, it, right. it, it, yeah, so it wasn't no bunch of reports of break-ins or extra burglars or rapes or, you know, it, no, it, it was just that they quit issuing tickets. As we reported here, New York uh, City was issuing out these frivolous tickets to extreme degrees. Uh, at one point, they had nearly half a million tickets just for littering. Just for living. And many of those were falsified tickets. And the proof was shown uh, that they were falsified tickets. So they were just making things up to create this revenue. It's crazy, man. And, and again, how how did people before 
you know, we had about a million police on this street. Was people just running around killing everybody, killing each other? I mean, I know the white terrorists was preying on the black community and lynching and, and, and doing all that kind of stuff, you know, but the police didn't wasn't protecting them damn communities, were they? No, the police was on the lynch line. They was holding the damn rope. You know what I'm saying? So uh, why do we need the police, Max? I'm with you, Scotty. I'm with you, man. And, uh, well, we got about 20 minutes left, Scotty, and we got a couple segments. We should uh, go ahead and move into those and uh, get into our 21st century rider of the Underground Railroad. Yeah, I have to forgive me today. I'm a little out of it. I said it. My, my whole family just going through some things. So if I sound down, it's because I am. I'm, I'm, I'm here, and I'm holding up. And we're doing the damn thing. And if there's prayer warriors out there, uh, we would appreciate it if you hold us in your prayers. Our family does need some divine intervention at this time. <clears throat> but other families also uh, suffered. And one of those is our rider of the 21st century Underground Railroad, who is Bo Cochran. This comes from uh, EJI.org. And it says, Bo Cochran, exonerated from Alabama's death row, dies at 73. So this is kind of a memoriam for him here. James Bo Cochran died on July 12th at age 73, nearly two decades after he was exonerated and released from Alabama's death row. Bo Cochran was wrongly accused of killing a white man in Birmingham, Alabama in 1976. Despite the weakness of the state's evidence, the jury of 11 white men, or 11 white people, and one African-American convicted Mr. Cochran, and he was sentenced to death. After the state's courts upheld his conviction and sentence, EJI recruited attorney Kenneth Frazier, pitcher had left with Mr. Cochran, who led the team of volunteer lawyers from the Dinker, Biddle, and Reef that fought to exonerate Mr. Cochran. Mr. Cochran spent 19 years on death row before his conviction was overturned by a federal court, which found that prosecutors had illegally <clears throat> removed black people from his jury. Let me say that again. Mr. Cochran spent 19 years on death row before his conviction was overturned by a federal court which found that prosecutors had illegally removed black people from his jury. Evidence from former prosecutors showed that the DA's office that prosecuted Mr. Cochran had a pattern of removing African Americans from juries, that they believed pro prospective black jurors were less reliable and should not be left on juries if at all possible, and that race was a factor in deciding who to remove, particularly where you had a white victim and a black defendant. On retrial, where he was represented by Richard Chaff, Mr. Cochran was acquitted of capital murder. He was released from prison in 1997. His case featured in documentary film Death in Dixie. On March 31st, 2009, EJI honored Kenneth Frazier and, his, and celebrated Mr. Cochran's release at his annual benefit dinner. We are saddened by Mr. Cochran's passing and grateful for the opportunity to have worked with him after his release to bring attention to the problems in the criminal justice system. We will remember him fondly for his warm smile, his hopefulness, and the grace with which he dealt with his illegal conviction and unjust imprisonment. And here at New Abolitionist Radio, we salute you. 
Salute, salute, salute. What I did not hear though was any accountability for uh, anybody who who did wrong in this. None. The court, a federal court, finds that you did this, that you did this on purpose, and not only did you do it to him, you had a habit of doing it. It was part of your doctrines within that prosecutorial pool and part of the uh, rules and regulations that you apparently followed was to eliminate black people from juries because you didn't think they were reliable. But see, this is why this keeps happening, though. There's never in Man, I've yet... There may have been one story I may recall, but my memory's a little hazy, of a prosecutor who engaged in prosecutorial misconduct was actually charged... Just one, yes. I remember one. But I remember a whole bunch of people getting out of prison and and prosecutorial uh, misconduct uh, is mentioned in their exoneration. But again, no. see, it's not hard to figure out, people. People do what you allow them to do. If there's no determinant, if there is no, you know, accountability for one's action, then, I mean, what? You get what you get. You, this should be expected. It should, matter of fact, it shouldn't be any other way. We should be seeing cops killing people like that. We should see all these innocent people being convicted because of crooked prosecutors. Why should we see this? Because there's never any accountability. None. None. One. So why would In they the stop? In the United States, one prosecutor has been convicted. That I know of. Just one. So again, it's not hard to figure out no accountability, then you are not going to change anybody's behavior. There's no deterrent for them to change behavior. We have to give people incentive to change behavior. You know, that's why they got the death penalty, even though, you know, I don't agree with the death penalty. And it certainly hasn't stopped any anybody from being killed or murdered or anything like that. But I do know, though, in terms of human behavior, like, for example, let me let, let me clarify what I'm saying. I grew up in a community. I live here, you know, when I excluding the years I was in Detroit for about 10 years. But when I moved down here, back down here in junior high, growing up around these white people and what have you, and, and, and you know, my cousin, and, and knowing that we in the minority, and listening to my aunts and them and how they had to deal with white folks in school, you know, when, when they integrated the schools and seeing how they were fights and stuff like that. Look, man, since we were outnumbered, we know we had to be extra vicious. You know what I'm saying? If anybody, if any of them white boys got out of line, boot had to be put to ass. You know why? To provide a deterrent. Lest they think that we weak and then they will get courage and then they'll all mob us and stuff like that. No. We had to show there's a price to pay for messing with a black person. And we will beat you down. We will be we will get vicious with it. That provides a deterrent. That provided a deterrent, you know. And, and so I would say, you know, that pretty much it, things were cool when I was in high school. We didn't have a bunch of race riots and stuff. There was individual fights, but there were never race riots because they didn't want to fight us because they knew we were going to come hard. 
there has to be a deterrent. If there's no deterrent, if people don't fear anything bad happening to them or or them having to pay for their actions, then, you know, they're going to they gonna do what they do. They're going to terrorize you. The same with the analogy with the bully. You know, you encourage bullies when you give them your lunch money. You encourage them when you, when you run from them and, and in fear. Man, I never forget my mother and, and, and uh, uh, her husband at the time would have been my stepfather locking me out the house because I was running from this white boy across the street when we lived in Detroit. He was much bigger than me, but they wasn't going to let him keep bullying me. You know, and, and so when I seen I couldn't get in the house, it was, I was going to have to fight. I man, I pulled out my Bianca. You know what Bianca is, right? That's some breath spray. I sprayed that mm-hmm. dude in the eyes when he saw I couldn't get in the house. He came up on the porch. Oh, I got you now. Man, I sprayed him in the eyes. You know, this is before Mace. I maced him, and I pushed him down the damn stairs, and he never bothered me again. So, again, if there's no deterrent to these killer cops, they're going to keep killing. If there's no accountability for these crooked prosecutors, they're going to keep putting people into slavery. It is not hard. It's a matter of accountability. It's a matter of, of providing a deterrent. They have no deterrent. In fact, they have an incentive, a monetary incentive to put us into slavery. Indeed, they do. Well, our next segment coming up is going to be our abolitionists in profile where every week we examine an abolitionist from the past and a not too distant past sometimes as we have featured such as Angela Davis. Uh, but we remember them, remember their stories and their contributions and honor them here at New Abolitionist Radio. This week's abolitionist in profile is John Greenleaf Whittier. Got some music for us, Kyrie? John Green Whittier was an American poet and abolitionist who in the latter part of his life was a household name in both England and in the United States. Born in Massachusetts in 1807, John Greenleaf Whittier's career divided into four periods, poet slash journalist, abolitionist, writer slash humanitarian, and Quaker poet. At age 19, he submitted his poem to William Lloyd Garrison, the two banded together in the abolitionist cause. By 1843, Whittier decided that to utilize the political arena towards abolition, he became an advocate of justice, tolerance, and liberal humanitarianism. Born on December 17th in 1807 in Haverville, Massachusetts, John Greenleaf Whittier became a poet who was also remembered for his contributions to the abolitionist movement. The second of four children born to a Quaker couple, Whittier grew up on a farm. He had little schooling, but he discovered a passion for poetry at a young age. In 1826, Whittier had his first poem published entitled The Exiles' Departure. The poem ran in the Newbury Free Press. Abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison edited the paper and encouraged Whittier in his writing. Before long, Whittier was pursuing a career in journalism. He served as editor of the New England Weekly Review from 1830 to 1832. Whittier also published his first book, Legends of New England in Prose and Verse in 1831. With the pamphlet Justice and Expediency, 1833, Whittier focused his writing talents on advancing the abolitionist cause. In the 1830s, 
He gave numerous lectures against slavery and penned poems championing its abolition. These works later appeared in the 1837 collections of poems written during the progress of the abolition question in the United States. From 1838 to 40, Whittier edited the abolitionist newspaper, the Pennsylvania Freeman. While he was editor, an angry mob destroyed the paper's offices. By 1843, Whittier had chosen to distance himself from radical abolitionist tactics, instead opting to use political methods to advocate for the end of slavery. Whittier never stopped writing poetry, though his focus, though his focus changed from the political to the pastoral in his later works. With 1866's Snowbound, a winter idol, he became one of the country's most popular poets. The works sold well enough to set him up comfortably. Readers embraced his later collections as well. Having become a revered literary figure, Whittier celebrated his 70th birthday in 1877 with such contemporaries as Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and Mark Twain. In 1890, Whittier published his last collection of poetry at sundown. Whittier was 84 when he died on September 7, 1892 at a friend's home in Hampton Falls, New Hampshire. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, Brother Whittier. Salute. <clears throat> salute. His uh his actual transition very much reminds me of my own. Pretty much the same way. You know, I was an artist and poet and then uh, I became aware of certain things and I started redirecting my art and then eventually my art became a tool for something else. Uh where I am now. And for the past forty years I have been uh providing literary content as well as other things. Now tell people again where uh, they can catch some of that literary content coming up soon. MaximumImpactPoetry.com is our website. It's kind of outdated, but you can find out just about everything that we do on there. And also I'll be doing two events in the coming days. We'll be in Kansas City, Missouri on uh, September 24th, and then uh, we'll be in Asheville, uh, North Carolina, no, actually, we're, yes, Asheville, North Carolina in October. On both occasions, I'll be one of, first the keynote speaker and then one of the speakers in a human rights conference. I'll be bringing the issue of abolition to the table and the people there want to hear it. All right. Um, I guess uh, I hope everything's okay with Johan and we never did, uh, he never did check in tonight. So let's hope the slave catchers didn't get him. He's, uh, he's actually very concerned right now, and I've, I've been praying for him. Uh, he, you know, he did that uh, panel discussion out there in Kansas City, and then the next day he was shot in Kansas City. And uh, they, they, he received a threat saying that if he had basically any contact with the shooter, that the boys in blue is going to be knocking on his door. And being that, you know, he's on a radio talk show, they can pretty much blame him for anything. They can say, you, he heard you or something like that. You know what I mean? So he, he's concerned and uh, he's spending some time uh, considering his next move at this point. His life is potentially in danger because of this. He, he, you know, he's there trying to talk with a couple of policemen and uh, other leaders in the church and community. And uh, they didn't really want to hear 
Well, they didn't really you know, I, I've had my share of death threats and and uh, harassment online and uh, calling and hanging up. And see, people don't know I do my own counter surveillance, man, and I hit them right back. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and but. Uh, you know, look, I accept that there are a lot of people out there that don't want to hear what we have to say, and they would rather see me dead. But guess what? I'm not afraid of death. You know, how dare I go into the United States military and be willing to put my life on the line at their whim, you know, whatever they told me to do, but I'm not willing to put my life on the line to end slavery. You know, to address racism and whatnot, man, no. You know, I don't care, man, because I don't fear death. They can make all the threats they want to. I ain't trying to hide from nobody. So, I'm, I'm you know, do I want to die? No, not really, but I ain't afraid to die. So, you know. Well, if anything happens to me, Scotty Reed, and anybody listening, remember that uh, I did not commit suicide. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> one thing right there. Scotty will never commit suicide because you know I don't believe in that. That's a mortal sin in my mind. Yeah, that's what prevents me too as well. You know, uh, from things like that. I want to. I want to be a witness to the end. Um, and if anything does happen to me, just remember me. Well, remember what I stood for. Well, I don't have any last words uh, tonight. Um, I've pretty much been ranting all night. So, y'all, thank you for being patient with me and indulging me. Uh, but I, I'm serious. There is a lot of people who aren't taking these things serious. They're really not. They think they are, but they're not. They're not. And they need to take it serious. When a man sits up on a platform and threatens your children, you should be taking that with the utmost security. Don't take it as, oh, he just talking or the white man just using him or this or that. No, none of that matters. What matters is the threat, the clear and present danger to our children. And if you're not taking that serious, then, you know, I don't know what 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 will you take serious if you don't take that serious. But that's all I got, Max. Uh, I, I'm going to keep my simple too as well, Sky Reed, and I read a quote from someone famous that says, <clears throat> power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to when you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be opposed upon them, and these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or with both. Quote, unquote, Melania Trump. Remember that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind.